Hello everyone, um, my name is Cara, I'm also a third year engineering student but I do physiology as well. Um, so today I'll be leading us in reading God's word, um, so you can follow along with me on the little booklet from Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal it up, what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing this thing keeps going, I'm sorry. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and he said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, and he, and as, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of, the, of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beasts that come up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every tribe, people, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because, of these, because these two prophets who had tormented them, those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Thanks, Cara. Uh, my name's Tim. If we haven't met, uh, you'll find an outline uh, on the piece of paper. I hope that'll be helpful. And I need to take this down if I can find the right switch. That one. Okay. Yeah, there's a switch. It's a secret switch. <laughs> Sorry? Ah, thank you. God's witnesses. Um, I reckon one of the keys to living life well is to work out sort of what phase of life you're in. So when you're at high school, it was a pretty obvious phase because at the end of high school, there's this thing called ATAR, isn't there? And ATAR tells you how to live at high school. You've got to panic. You've got to work out, I've got to get some marks, otherwise my life will be ruined. Then you get to university and you've got to work out what uni's about. Because uni's about getting a degree, making contacts, networking, and having a good time, isn't it? And so you live well at uni if you know what's at the end of uni, the graduation, maybe work after that. So I want to ask, what is the agenda for this period of history, for the period of history that you and I live in? And the answer to that really comes from working out what happens at the end. Because if you know what happens at the end, you've got to work out, you can work out what will happen before the end, what we must do before the end. The book of Revelation tells us that God the Creator is seated on the throne of the universe. This is not a democracy, it's a theocracy. And that Jesus Christ died and raised is now ruling beside him on the throne and has the scroll of God's plans and purposes for humanity, for history, in his hand. So what must happen before the end? There will be an end, because the Lamb is already reigning. But what must happen before the end? Do the Dockers need to win a premiership? Do you need to graduate from university? Does the temple in Jerusalem have to be rebuilt again? Well, no, let let me show you what Jesus says. This is what must happen before the end. The gospel must first be preached to all nations because God promised to bring blessing to all the nations of the world and the gospel of Jesus is the way that happens to Nepal and Nigeria, to the Inuits and to Aborigines. And if I wanted to stop the talk now, all I'd say is this is Revelation 10 and 11. The gospel must be preached to all nations. That's the, that's the summary, that's the short bit. But let's explore how it does it, because it does it a more interesting way than just a simple statement like that. John has already told us that we live sorry, uh, yeah, uh, 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 in the period of the six trumpets. That was last week. We saw these trumpet blasts come one after each other. The talk's online if you want to have, uh, go and listen to it again. But the seven trumpets are part of these sequences in Revelation Having set things up in chapters 1 to 5, there's seven seals, then seven trumpets. A few other things happen, come back next week for 12 to 14, and then seven bowls. We're in the trumpets. And just to to go a bit more fine-grained, we see in chapter 5 that the Lamb is on the throne of the universe beside God the Creator with a scroll. 
And the scroll is sealed with seven seals and those are gradually opened. And the things that are happening in the world at the moment are revealed. Seals one to four, destruction happens. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Seal five, the martyrs uh, 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 before God are crying out how long before seal six, the day of the wrath of the Lamb. And then there's a pause, an interlude, where the focus moves to God's people being sealed and seen. And then comes seal seven, where there's silence, we saw last week, in preparation for the seven trumpets. And then the seven trumpets start their go. And again, the first four trumpets are like the first four seals, destruction on earth. Trumpet five, the first woe. There's torture for the unsealed. And we see that the trumpets are the same sort of things as the the seals, But now the the interest is the effect on non-Christians, those who aren't God's people. Trumpet 6, we saw last week, a third of humanity is killed, but there's no repentance. It doesn't bring about a change of heart. Before, there's another pause, an interlude, uh, uh, where we talk about, we see the prophet and the witnesses before trumpet 7 at the end of chapter 11. So just notice that pattern because it helps us understand what is going on in the section we're looking at. It's also helpful to realise how Revelation is working. I pinched this from Matt. Great technical skill. Because <laughs> the book of Revelation is like colour printing. If you've got a colour laser printer at home, this is what happens. The, the, the printer actually puts down layers of colour in turn. But they're all part of the same image. So there's yellow Ben, there's, there's uh, cyan Ben, uh, there's magenta Ben, and there's the full thing, colour Ben. Uh, but it's built up of those different colours, and Revelation does that. It keeps giving us another colour, putting down another layer to see the full picture of God's purposes for planet Earth in our period of life. The seals, as we've seen, are general humanity. Christians and non-Christians, but the trumpets, the plagues, are particularly focused on the non-Christian population. And between 6 and 7, trumpet 6 and 7, we have this pause where we see the prophet and the witness. That's what we're looking at today. And the question it's answering is, what are God's people supposed to be doing while the trumpets are blasting? Now, we need to set the scene a little bit because how do the six, first six trumpets finish? This is how they finish. The end of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They didn't stop worshipping demons and idols. Uh, they did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. They should have repented when they see what's happening in the world, the disasters that are coming upon us. The bushfires that devastate, the, uh, the forests and, and homes, the cyclones that demolish towns, the salt that polluces the fresh water, the tsunamis, the COVID. They should have repented, but they don't. So what the trumpets are saying is that when you watch the news, you should understand how God views planet Earth. It gives you insight. Is God happy with what's happening in our boardrooms and our bedrooms? Is he happy with what's happening on our campuses? No, he's not. See, if the world was a cosy place, if every day had the beautiful weather of Perth in April uh, across the whole planet, if there was no COVID, everyone just lived to a beautiful ripe old age and every family worked brilliantly, you think, oh, God must be happy with us. There's no day of judgment coming. 
Everything's fine. It's all honky-dory. But you read the news. It's not like that, is it? We're supposed to realise that God is not happy. In fact, he's quite upset, distressed, angry. And that must mean there's a day of judgment coming. There's a use-by date for this world. God's megaphone, God's trumpet blasts of the disasters on our planet tell us that judgment is coming. Wake up. And then we come to the break, the interlude, the angel and the scroll in chapter 10. And chapter 10 begins with John seeing this mighty angel, Colossus, who plants one foot on land and one foot on the sea and has a little open scroll in his hand. He's the master of the earth and he thunders. And when he thunders, his voice is deafening. John's got to sort of block his ears up. And he's about to write down what he hears and he's told not to write it down. Because some things we're not supposed to know. That's helpful to know, isn't it? It's helpful to know there are things we don't know, we'll never know. Somebody who comes along and says they know everything is wrong. But we are told one thing the angel says, which must be important. End of verse 6, he says, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh trumpet's about to sound, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. To understand this, he, he actually tells us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go back to the prophets and understand the mystery that the prophets talked about and the delay that the prophets talked about, which, and a, uh, which if you're not sure, takes us back to Daniel chapter 12. End of the book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet, he's had all these visions and he's told to roll them up and seal all those words in a scroll until the time of the end. And he says, well, how long is that going to be? And he's told it's going to be a time, times, that is two, and half a time, which adds up to three and a half times, doesn't it? There's going to be a delay of three and a half times till the end. Now, it's a bit hard to work out what three and a half is all about. Um, We'll come back to that in, uh, in a few minutes. But... The angel says there's one thing that must happen before the end. God's mystery must be completed. It must be fulfilled. Can you say, well, what mystery is that? Now, it's important to understand what the Bible means by mystery. A mystery is not something that you send to the maths department at UWA because there are very clever people who can solve it. In the Bible, a mystery is something that is hidden, that you don't know because it's behind a curtain. Now, if it's behind the curtain, what... What do you need in order to know the mystery? You just need the curtain open, don't you? So I, I think probably uh, 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 what is in my right pocket is a mystery to you. Isn't it? It's a mystery. You, you can make some guesses, but you don't know what it is, do you? But if I put my hand in my pocket and take out, there, a key, thumb drive and a dirty handkerchief. Let's put it back in my pocket maybe. <laughs> As soon as I pull it out, the mystery is revealed. And the New Testament says God's purposes for the world were a mystery. But in Jesus, we know what that mystery is. Ephesians 3 is one place. The mystery of God is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. 
That is, in the Old Testament, it's not clear how God is going to bless all the nations of the world. Because Israel is his special people. But when Christ comes and dies for all the world, the mystery is solved. That's how God achieves it. Because Jew and Gentile alike, Aussie and and Asian alike, all the peoples of the world are reconciled to God through Jesus to create one new people from every nation and tribe and language. It's all revealed that that's the mystery of God. So when will it be accomplished? When will it be completed? When the gospel has gone to all the nations of the world. That's when. There's a delay until that time. So let's think a little bit more about this. Oh, sorry, before we get to eating scroll. Um, how's that going to happen? How will the gospel go to all the peoples of the world? Well, that's what verses 9 to 11 are about. The, the little scroll in the hand of the angel. John is told to take it and eat it. It'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. Now let me reveal my my method at this point of understanding, because <coughs> most of chapter 10 and 11 is John seeing stuff with no explanation. How do we work it out? Well, he gives us the clues by talking about it's, it's the prophets, it's the mystery of God. And now by sort of, you could call it association. That is, the book of Revelation is full of Old Testament ideas and echoes and pictures and allusions. If you know the Old Testament, you can make sense of it. So, a bit of charades. Eating a scroll. Does anybody know what that sounds like in the Old Testament? Where does somebody get a scroll to eat that turns out to be sweet and bitter? Jeremy? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Exactly. Anybody else going to say Ezekiel? Somebody going to... Ah, good. Yeah, you can all put your hands up now. Yeah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. I know Ezekiel. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, let's, let's go. So this is Ezekiel 2, end of 2, beginning of 3. This is part of God's commission of Ezekiel. He looks and there's a hand stretched out with a scroll in it, unrolled. On both sides are written words of lament and mourning and, and woe. And he's told to eat it. And he eats it and it's sweet in his mouth. Sweet as honey. The sweetest thing you can imagine in the ancient world. When you get to the end of chapter 3... It also turns bitter in his stomach. And that's what happens to John. That is, this scroll that he's to eat, like Ezekiel, is a scroll that contains words about the judgment of God. For Ezekiel, it was on rebellious Israel. He was to say these words, preach these words of woe. And to eat it is the sense of you internalise that word. You make it your own. To speak it, and it's sweet because you have the pleasure of representing God and speaking His words, but it's bitter because it causes pain of God's judgments. And Ezekiel is told people won't listen to Him. And so John is commissioned in exactly the same way. He is to be a prophet of the judgments of God, but no, no longer to Israel, but verse 11 to many nations and peoples and languages and kings, to, to the whole world. And as we go through chapter 11, we see more and more of these echoes of the Old Testament, which is how to work out what it's about. So I'm going to get you to do just a little bit of charades. You happy to do that? So with the person next to you, 
I want you to see whether you can think of anywhere in the Old Testament where it talks about measuring the temple or trampling the city or olive trees and lampstands or fire in their mouths or shutting up the sky so there's no rain or turning water to blood. See if you can see if any of those ring any bells. If the, don't worry if you draw a blank. That's okay. It's not a problem that you don't know your Old Testament back to front. Encouragement to do it. If you draw a blank, turn to the person on the other side of you, see if they can help you. So I'll give you just two minutes to see if you can work out any of those. Okay, it sounds like you're running out of ideas. <laughs> Let's start with the easiest ones. Where does water get turned to blood in the Old Testament? Exodus. Who does it? Moses. It's one of the ten plagues, isn't it? Who shuts up the sky so there's no rain? Elijah. Yeah, remember? Um, he prays to God that there'd be no rain over Israel and there's no rain for three and a half years. And then he... He sees that little cloud on the horizon that comes and drenches the whole place. Yeah, so I'll give you the answers. Uh, Measuring the temple, Ezekiel chapter 40. uh, The vision of the new rebuilt temple, Ezekiel uh, is part of the measuring it. And to measure the temple is, is to mark it out as owned, to know exactly what they're, what's there, like a stock, ta- a stock take, so that you make it yours to protect and preserve, protect and preserve. The trampling the city, well, Daniel talks about it many times, the 42 months. The, how long is 42 months? Quick mathematicians, how many years? Three and a half years. And throughout Daniel, God's people and God's city is trampled by the Gentiles for this period of three and a half years, time at times and at half a time. Two olive trees and two lampstands, getting more obtuse. Zechariah. You know Zechariah, don't you? No, you probably don't, actually. Uh, Zechariah is shown this vision of two, two olive trees which represent the Spirit of God empowering and two lampstands, the people of God, particularly the king and the priests, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they're in a situation where they're supposed to be rebuilding the temple, but the opposition is so great they just make no progress whatsoever. And God says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, this will happen. It won't be impressive, but it will be effective. Um, fire from their mouths. Elijah, do you remember Elijah? The, the, the contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And he calls down fire on the, the sacrifice and it's burnt up. Happens another time with Elijah as well. So keep those in mind as we move forward. But back to John. John is commissioned to be a prophet like Ezekiel. To take God's gospel message, which is sweet and bitter, salvation and judgment, and proclaim it. Be a prophet. Now, he's been doing it for 60 years already at this point, 
And God says, keep doing it. This must happen. Which brings us to chapter 11. The two witnesses. So John is given a reed, a measuring rod. was told, go and measure the temple of God, the altar of its worshippers. But exclude the outer court. Don't measure it. Because it's been given to the Gentiles to trample on for 42 months. How do we make sense of that? The picture is God, through John, is cordoning off the temple as his to protect it. But it's only the inner court, the outer court, is to be abandoned to the Gentiles to trample all over. Now, which temple is he talking about? At this point, the temple in Jerusalem has been totally demolished by Rome. And the New Testament tells us that God is building a new temple, which isn't bricks and mortar. It's people being built together as his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The whole building is becoming a holy temple in the Lord because God's spirit dwells within it. It's the people of God who are his temple. The inner, the outer, the, the protected, the trample. I take it that's two sides of life as God's people. On one side, we're protected. God has measured us eternally safe and secure. But on the other side, we're trampled, pressured, persecuted, surrounded by the world. Both are true at the same time. And the city is trampled, the temple is trampled on for a period of 42 months, the three and a half years. Now, what's the three and a half years? Seven in the Bible, especially in this sort of literature, is the number for completeness, a a full thing, a full life, a a full house. Three and a half is half of seven. And therefore it, it, it communicates the idea of being cut off halfway through. If you visit some cemeteries, I don't know whether you're a cemetery visitor or not. I won't ask you to own up to it at this point. Occasionally you'll find in a cemetery tombstones which have a broken column on top. If you have a look at the the tombstones under those broken columns, it's always because the person had died young at 20 or 25 or or something like that. Their their life had been cut off. And that's the same idea as the three and a half, a period cut short. It's about quality of time, not just quantity. In Mark 13, this is what Jesus said. If the Lord God had not cut short those days of tribulation... No one would survive, but for the safety of the elect whom he'd chosen, he shortened them. The three and a half is representative of that shortened time in which uh, the, the, the people of God are under pressure. So all of God's people are precious, protected, but they're threatened, besieged, they're suffering. What are they to do while that's happening? Should they keep quiet? Should they just batten down the hatches? Well, that's where the two witnesses come. Verse 3, I'll appoint my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is that? Quick maths. Divide by 30. Divide by 12. You get three and a half years. Lo and behold. That is, the whole time it's being trampled, they are witnessing. They are testifying. Who are they, though? Well, we're told they're two olive trees and two lampstands. They have the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, lampstands represent the people of God, the churches of God. Too many clues, I think, to miss what John is is being shown. These are not two particular characters from history, Athanasius and Augustine or Calvin and Luther or Keller and Piper. This is all of God's people. 
as the witnesses of God, of Jesus Christ. Why two? Well, because in the Old Testament and many other places, two witnesses are needed to corroborate the truth of anything. That's why there's two. Together, they can testify to the truth. They should be believed. And what do they do? They prophesy. Or in verse 7, they testify. (coughs) Uh, And we get confused about prophecy, but John is very clear about prophecy. Chapter 19, this is what he says. The spirit of prophecy are those who bear testimony to Jesus. That is, prophecy in Revelation is just evangelism. Testifying to the truth of Jesus, his death and resurrection and his coming judgment. And these words have power because what they declare is true and will come true. And what happens to them? Well, in verse 7, a beast arises from Satan's realm, Satan's agent who attacks them and kills them. And then there's no funeral. Their bodies just lie out on the streets to be, well, made fun of by everybody. Shamed. And the people are so thrilled that they're dead that they announce a public holiday and they send presents to each other because this is like a birthday. This is like Christmas. It's a terrific time because their death means their tor- the torment that they've inflicted has finished. They've experienced that witness not as something positive but as torment. And so they're glad that they're dead. People don't like being told that they face the judgment of God, that they're going to hell, no matter how gently or lovingly you say it. Most people will feel like they're being tormented. And the final outcome, verse 11, three and a half days, again, a time cut short, the breath of life enters them and they go to heaven on a cloud. What, what does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Who goes to heaven on a cloud? Jesus, isn't it? So just like their Lord, they're killed, but they're raised, vindicated to new life. They testify to Jesus, the gospel of his death and resurrection and his coming judgment. And as they do it, they're killed, but God vindicates and restores them. And then in chapter 11, verse 15, comes the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet sounded, verse 15. There were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of the world, the political empires, the the superpowers, the multinationals, all of those things cease to exist because they're replaced. They're taken up into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is the end. This is the end of history as we know it. The world as we know it. And Christ rules, Christ's rule in verse 17 and 18 means that judgment comes even on the dead. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding, rewarding your servants, the prophets, your people who revere your name, both great and small. It's time for God's wrath on those who've resisted his rule. For those who don't repent of their opposition to Jesus in their violence and superstition, in their sexual immorality and greed, this will be the worst day they could ever imagine. But for those who've suffered, who've been trampled on as they've maintained their loyalty to Jesus and spoken up for him, there's vindication and relief and joy. 
This is the best day of their lives. They're proved to be on the right side of history because Jesus will reign forever and ever. Well, that's what we've seen. That's what John communicates. Let's reflect on that for a little bit. You get the distinct impression, don't you, that God wants the world to know that there is a day of judgment coming. And that day of judgment will be a day of wrath for many. We know that God wants them to know because he sounds the trumpets. They're sounding all around us. The disasters, the disease, the destruction and death, COVID and bushfires and floods and torture, warning humanity that judgment is coming. They should see that God's not okay with our lives, with our behaviour, individually and corporately. They're supposed to look around the world and say, why is this happening? And draw the obvious conclusion. But God doesn't just sound trumpets. He appoints his prophets like John. He raises up his witness, uh, witnesses, which are all his people, to prophesy and testify to that gospel. It's sweet, but it's sour because it focuses on the judgment of God that's coming. But why does God want them to know it? If you reflect for a minute, it's not hard to work out the answer, is it? Ezekiel was appointed as a watchman for the people of Israel. God says, I've raised you up for this very purpose so that you warn the people of Israel when judgment, when danger is coming. But where's the danger coming from? It's coming from God himself. God says to to, to Ezekiel, you have to warn the people that I am coming to judge. Now, what sort of invader does that? That, That's like the robber who's going to rob your house, sending you a text two hours before saying, I'm going to turn up to rob your house at 3pm. You think, what? If you wanted to rob my house, you, you wouldn't warn me, would you? And God doesn't delight in bringing judgment. He has no delight in the death of any sinner. In love, he warns so that people will repent and escape his judgment. If you're not yet a Christian, can I beg you to take this seriously? God's been firing warning shots across your bow for ages. Just look at the world. And God lovingly warns you with words. Turn from resisting. Turn from rebellion. Because if you do, you'll be welcomed. Christians, can you see God's agenda for our lives? The end is coming. I'm not sure when, but soon. We know it must happen because Jesus has been raised to reign. Rebellious humanity has a use-by date. And we've been appointed as witnesses to God's coming judgment and his grace to those who repent. But I admit I find it difficult to tell people about the judgment of God. It's sort of awkward. I get a chance to explain the gospel to people. God is the loving ruler of this world. He made us. He made us to rule the world under him. We've rejected him because we want to run life our own way without him. And death and judgment. And God in his love sent his son to die for us. I I want to skip over that bit because it's so awkward. It creates relational dissonance. But if I do... I torpedo the whole thing, don't I? Because the gospel doesn't make sense without judgment. If I'm not in deep trouble, Jesus' death is irrelevant, isn't it? It's just a bit of sentimentality out of ancient history. And I think 
Judgment is the part of the gospel that most Australians don't believe. Just reflect on the pops we saw. What's going to happen to you after you die? Not one person said, I'll face the judgment of God. We don't think it's real as a community, as a culture and across the world. I don't think it's coming. I don't think we'll be condemned. If people did, they'd be coming to us and saying, how on earth can I be saved? How can I be forgiven? And I think we've made the whole problem worse. Because when people raise the issue of suffering and evil in the world, what do we do? So often we get very defensive and we sort of try and exclude God from being in any way responsible for it. Well, maybe because God allows it or maybe God's just sitting on the sidelines. He's not involved at all when there's any sort of suffering. We let God off the hook and in doing so, we muffle the trumpet sound of God. We mute it to almost nothing. No wonder our friends don't ever consider that they might be facing God's judgment. Very different to Jesus. Luke chapter 13. Some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate had obviously killed in a gruesome way some Galileans. Jesus, look, people are suffering. What does Jesus say? Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than you guys? I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all perish. And then Jesus raises another one, the the tower that fell, killed 18 people. Do you think they're more guilty than the others in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, unless you repent, you'll you'll perish. See, Jesus uh, uh, resonates with the trumpets, doesn't he? Now, I'm not saying we all say it as boldly and as starkly as Jesus says it here, but I think I need to be saying things like this. See, to not warn people is unloving. It's an abdication of responsibility. So imagine if two weeks ago the, the Bureau of Meteorology did not warn us about Cyclone Saroja. And when you went to them after and said, listen, the Cyclones just smashed Calbarry and Northampton. Why didn't you warn us? Imagine they said, oh, well, I thought it might upset you. What? It's meant to upset us. It needs to upset us, doesn't it? It's the most unloving thing you can do to not warn people when you know that they're in danger. But John warns us people won't thank us for warning them. They'll experience it as torment. Uh, just two weeks ago, a Christian called Martin Isles was on q and I don't know whether you ever watch Q&A, but it's a sort of panel discussion thing. And Martin Isles was courageous enough to say to the audience and to Australia on television, God commands all people everywhere to repent. One of the panellists was a guy called Trent Zimmerman. He's a, a federal politician. He, says, he said in response, direct response, I'm not prepared to repent of who I am under any circumstances. Which is exactly why he needs to repent, actually. But you notice he, he is, and others uh, explicitly accused Martin of hate speech. And we will be accused of hate speech if we say to people, we face the judgment of God. Who are witnesses? We are witnesses. Us. So let's do it. Let's do it with love. Let's do it with compassion. Let's do it with tears. Let's do it together. But let's do it. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we admit that often we lose our courage. And we lose our love. 
And although we know that judgment is coming, we keep our mouths zipped. Father, please give us the courage and the love to be your witnesses.